The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. The scripture reading this morning is from Ruth, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. If uh, you have the Bibles underneath the chairs, it's in page 223. It's going to be also on the screen behind me. You can read along with me in your, your mind and hearts. You don't have to read out loud. Starting in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that I may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whom these young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. So good morning. I'm uh, my name is Jonathan Shanks. I'm one of the elders here at Doxa. A lot of new faces as time's going on. So uh, glad you're here. You're wondering who this guy is. So there it is. There's the introduction. Welcome. <laughs> um, we're at a really interesting place in Ruth, and sometimes when you sit down and you soak in God's Word, you look at this and say, what's really the takeaway? And there are some things in this passage that should never have happened if there was no God. They would never transpire. And I was thinking about this because, you know, you can read historical accounts that are a couple thousand years old, and you say, well, is that really relevant to me today? Does it make a difference? Does it matter? And... God affirms his hand upon lives today, just as he did back then. So I, I was thinking about two accounts. I was, um, looked at a news article online, and it was of a motorcycle guy. And we can't post the video because YouTube has problems with like using their stuff in large groups. So I don't have it for you, but you, it's, uh, if you look up like intense crash uh, motorcycle versus semi, that, it'll get you there. And so there's a guy riding down a highway, an interstate, ride down and he, he winds up having a malfunction with his steering. And you see clearly the steering starts to go. And there's a cement embankment on one side and there's an 18-wheeler on the other. I don't know if anyone's seen this, by the way. And, he's, and, and it goes totally out of control. He's going about 50, 60 miles an hour and he drops the bike. And then you see it sliding in between the wheels of the 18-wheeler. Now, the guy, in order to document this accident, he had a dash cam or a helmet cam on, like a GoPro on his head. So you see all of this. Hits the ground, and you see the truck, and you're like, oh, it's going to end really badly. And he slides completely under the 18-wheeler, comes out the other side, and comes to a stop. And you see him, he's still in traffic, so the guy like jumps up and runs to the side of the road. But you're like, wait a minute, that, did that really happen? And so they run the video back in slow motion, and literally he slides underneath the 18-wheeler going 50 miles an hour, and you go, oh, my goodness. How is that possible? But it ended horribly 
you, you just can't see it. If you didn't have the evidence for that, you'd say, nah, that's a fish story. I was with, um, I practiced law for a living, and I was um, dealing with another lawyer. And it's interesting, sometimes you say something about your faith or who you are, and it trips them. Like, all of a sudden, he made a statement, and I stopped and kind of looked, and I'm like, what's up with that? And, and it was a God moment there, because what was going on between the two of us was, was kind of explaining how by God's favor and good providence, we don't belong here. We, we would never be here on our own having this conversation as two professional men. And my, my testimony and my history is I've got a cat more alive, a life that has uh, more lives than a cat. There's just too many things have happened that, that I should not have come up for air. And so as we started talking, he said, yeah, well, I was a uh, young man in college. I believe he was in college. And he said, we were riding down a road, riding a Pathfinder down Interstate 20. And he said... We'd all fallen asleep, and literally, well, sadly, the driver fell asleep too. And they lost control, and they rolled down 20. Lost control of the car going 70 miles an hour. The driver was killed. Passenger was mangled. He was in the back seat. And he was ejected through the sunroof. Lands 100 feet from the car. And his buddy, who was the passenger, who was, who was still alive... He said, he goes, when the accident happened and I came up, like, became conscious, I thought, where, where's, where's my buddy? Where's Philip? And he goes, we must have dropped him off until I saw you come walking back up to the car. Literally, he walked back up to the car. And so we're going to see some parallels with this story about Ruth in particular, just the impossible becoming possible. And that's the theme of this morning's teaching, making the impossible possible. I don't have a breakdown of sections. This was weird as I kind of looked at it. I'm like, well, we're just, we're just not going anywhere. And, and really the, the sub-caption for making the impossible possible would be simply this, a plan for rest. A plan for rest. So do you have a plan for rest is the question I have for you this morning. You have a plan for rest, and that word we're going to break down as well. It's much bigger than that. So with that, let's pick up this morning. We're, we're midway through the story of Ruth. We, we know it started with Naomi, who was a Hebrew woman, married a fellow Hebrew named Elimelech. He was from Bethlehem. And there was a famine that came upon the land in Israel. And, and you know, it's interesting. Being from Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the word means, you know, anyone know what it means? Bethlehem, house of bread. And here they are fleeing the house of bread because of a famine. Deuteronomy had talked about saying that if you're going to worship foreign gods, that I'm going to bring a famine upon the land. And, and that's exactly what's happening. And, and Elimelech and Naomi's solution to their problem isn't to repent. It's to flee to a foreign pagan land. Now, how do you think things go from there? If, if you if you're, don't know where things are going, consult the book of Jonah just to figure that one out, all right? Because it goes from bad to simply worse when, when God is calling you back to repentance and you just say, no, not today. It gets worse. And that's really what happened because they wound up in this, this Moabite land and we read that Elimelech dies. And here's this widow left with two, two boys and she raises the boys and then it gets worse again. Under Hebrew law, they weren't supposed to ever marry foreign women and the two boys do what? They marry these two uh, Moabite women. And, and so we have Orpha, who was one of the women, and then we have Ruth as the other. And at this point, 
Uh, Naomi says, it can't get any worse. I might as well go home. And, and she tells the two Moabite women, no, don't come with me. And there are lots of reasons for that. But, but coming with Naomi would have been going back into a burning house for these Moabite women. And so at a certain point, uh, Orpah clearly knows this is not a good thing, that it's pointless and I'm not going. But, but Ruth, Ruth has this idea, no, I'm going where you're going to go. And we know, we know after uh, Naomi tries to convince her, Ruth replies, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Now, that's a pipe dream. That's like dropping the bike and rolling under the 18-wheeler and getting up unscathed. You have a Moabite woman, a woman from a pagan foreign land saying, I want to be a part of the people of God. And the explicit edict to the people of God is to have nothing to do with foreign pagan people. And Ruth says, sign me up. And off they go. They return to Israel. And, and that's the picture where we pick up. And we know from last week that there's favor granted to, to Ruth uh, Boaz, a wealthy landowner um, who has some distant family relations with Naomi, brings, uh, allows her to go and glean in the fields to feed herself. These, these women are destitute. And so we see the harvest season, in particular the barley season, drawing to a conclusion last week. And, and now looking forward to the future, Naomi is concerned about the coming winter and obviously their long-term security. And so with that, we pick up in Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with who, whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So it opens up. There's this event, this celebration, this festival of, of winnowing and threshing. It's interesting. The King James opens up this passage. It says, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you? Uh, New King uh, NIV says, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. And in the context, the Hebrew word translated uh, from security is uh, manok, um, which literally means a place of rest. So when you see this theme coming back again, it's much deeper than finding a home. Um, the, the broadly speaking, the Hebrew word there means ceasing to worry. That's interesting. Ceasing to struggle, ceasing to doubt, ceasing to be in jeopardy uh, by obtaining a permanent source of blessing. That's the fullness of the Hebrew word that we're talking about here. Much, much bigger picture comes in. And for Naomi, it's simply that she's thinking about herself. That's why she left Israel to start with, why she left the place of bread to, to find the security and winds up going full circle, kind of like Jonah. And so I, I asked this question this morning in opening. How many of us have faced disappointments, failures, frustration, loss, sadness, a feeling like you're living as an exile in foreign land, and then we go further from God, not closer to God? to find the solution. And what happens? You know, we were, a couple weeks ago we were talking about why do we find God at the end of our rope? And that's not really a fair statement. It's not a fair question. But generally speaking, you know why we find him there? Because we're not willing to try on our own efforts until we get to that place where there's nothing left of our own efforts. And that's not the way it's supposed to be, by the way. And if you haven't had those hardships, how many of us feel like we're living on a perpetual treadmill. Have you ever told yourself, oh, I just got to get an education? Some are young people identify. If I could just get an education, 
I could exhale. I could have some security. And you get the education, and you know, once you got the degree, what do you got to do? You got to find a job. Oh, okay, so now you go out and you're killing yourself and you're stressed and you go and find the job. And you walk in the first day of the job and you're like, Whew. how long does that rest last? How long? 15 minutes? And then you look and you're at the bottom of the totem pole and if only I could have his job. And you get the promotion. Then only if I could find Mr. or Mrs. Wright. I just got to find the right person. And you find them. And if only we could figure out how to find a down payment for the house. And somehow you scrape up enough, and then you get the house. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, i just love to have a family. And if only I could have a family. And the first thing that happens when you have kids is, you go, how am I going to afford to feed them? How often are we finding rest in that sought-after goal? You know, what degree, what job, what promotion, what person, what raise, what home has ever given us more than a fleeting sense of rest. That's what we're talking about this morning. Finding rest. Where do we find it? And in the temporal, yes, we have to do things to obviously put a roof over our head. But there's a yearning that's much deeper that drives us. And I know people that have had everything and taken a gun and pulled it up to their head and pulled the trigger. Literally, personally known people. You know, I, when I look around, it ain't going to come with a nice lot and a big home. Not going to come with Mrs. Wright, sadly. Going to give you a news flash. Rest is not around the corner. It is never going to be around the corner. It's an inside job. It's an inside job. And if you can't find that through Christ, you're not going to find it. And that's really the truth. And even it, with a relationship with Christ, th there are the challenges of really how do we truly allow him to be who he says he is to us because only then are we going to find that rest. The other thing I was thinking about this, and, and I think Satan does this to us, is, is that there's always a part of me that says if I could just, life will get easier. And I don't care what it is. If I could just get this job, or if I could just have this, or if I could just deal with this health issue, or if I could just pay this bill off, or if I could just not have a mortgage, or if I could just, I'll be able to exhale. And there's no exhaling in this, on this side of eternity. And the reason for that, I'm going to give you a theory here. The reason for that is, is, is if we could find it, we wouldn't need Christ. And that's the bottom line. So we have this celebration. Now we come up to this end of the harvest celebration. There's this, what they call threshing and winnowing. And what they would do is go to a place called the threshing floor, the winnowing floor. They would take the, the, whatever the crops were, barley, uh, wheat, various things, tie them together, let them dry for a period of time. And then they would literally take it up to the threshing floor and they would beat these stalks and literally the fruit or the grain would fall from the stalks. And, and then it, typically they do it in the evening because in the scorching middle of the day there's no wind. And as the temperature drops toward the end of the day, in Israel at least, that there would be a wind. They'd usually want it on an elevated place. And literally then they would take the grain or the barley and the wheat and they'd throw it into the air and it would blow the chaff out. And so then you're left with nothing but the fruit. And so with this there would be a celebration at the harvest time of each year. So it would be this big deal of, of God's provision. And they would go and do the threshing. They would get their, their bounty and they'd have a big party after that. And that's the event that we're talking about here as we pick up tonight, or this morning, excuse me, um, in this evening. And so Naomi sees this opportunity for Ruth to, to approach Boaz at night and, and again to appeal to him to fulfill the law for their sake. Pick up chapter 3, verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. That's the ritual 
that one proposing for marriage would get involved in, by the way, and they're left in that state up until the marriage celebration. So literally, the figurative speech here is that this is, this is heading toward an um, engagement activity. Watch, therefore, and anoint yourself, uh, and put your cloak on, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So Naomi devises this plan. Um, this is in accordance with something called the Leverate Marriage Law. I hope I didn't butcher the word too bad, Leverate. It's, it's this, we've heard this word coming into this morning, the kinsman redeemer. And there was a practice in Israel, this time from Deuteronomy chapter 25, where if you had a brother who was married and he died before having a son, the widow would have to marry the next eligible brother of the deceased spouse. And the point for this would be that property was kept in families, and so you would want to create a bloodline that would allow them to continue to inherit this family as you go through the lineage. And so that first child, now by the way, just here's a little side note. If, if we were living here, you'd probably want to check out your husband's brother to see if he's good looking. A little creepy there, but hey, just a news flash there. Uh, we're in a very different culture. We, we no arranged marriages today in America. I mean, these were a lot of the majority were arranged marriages to start with. And so, and it's, that's really interesting in and of itself because the marriage then became a matter of covenant. Hey, you like your spouse or not, you're going to stick it out. And if you know you've got to stick it out, you make it work. Surprise, surprise why marriages would work. Um, and truthfully, I think at the end of the day, many of the marriages, biblical marriages, I'm not saying you don't find joy and satisfaction and companionship and all the provision of God, but there are times that if it's not a covenant, you wouldn't stick it out. And that's sad. Because you forfeit the blessing and the provision and the backing of a holy God in that union. So, back to Deuteronomy. So they would have this, this ceremony done um, because the, the brother would have to have a son with the widow. They're married now. And that first son then would receive his deceased father's inheritance to keep the property in the line. Now, there were times, though, that you wouldn't have an immediate brother in the neighborhood who would marry this person, so they would look for further family, and hence, hence we have the word kinsman redeemer. Now, the problem, even a greater problem with this was that the kinsman redeemer oftentimes stood in line that if that woman died without ever giving a son, guess who would inherit the property? The brother. So there was this incentive almost not to go and marry her, because at the end of the day, I'm going to get the property. So it would work to my benefit rather than go and have a son. Now, you still get the property during your lifetime, though, under those conditions. But that first son would then get the property. So there were men who would just use the land and benefit from it. Uh, but they don't have to deal with having to marry their brother's spouse. So with that, with that, we've got a little bit of this backdrop now for the Keynes. And this is what's going on here, is that Naomi's telling Ruth, you're the closest thing to somebody who could have a child, so you're going to go and present yourself. And this act of laying down before him was going to be seen as an invitation to a marriage proposal. So Naomi directs Ruth to go, wait. Boaz goes to sleep, uncovers his feet. Um, now there, was, there would have been no touching him, though. She would have lifted, he, would, he would be wearing a robe, and she would basically take the robe off his feet. You ever wake up in the middle of the night, you're uncovered? Well, that's why you woke up to start with, you're uncovered. And that's the hope, that it would get his attention to say, oh, something's wrong here. And when he goes to cover his feet, he looks down, and guess what? 
We read in Ruth chapter 3, verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as the mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was married, he went down to the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and covered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled, turned over, and behold, a woman was at his feet. He said, who are you? Dark, obviously, can flip on the nightlight. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. That's the word for kinsman redeemer. And that you have a, uh, an overwhelming picture of her saying, I am willing that uh, you, could, you would marry me. And he said to her, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And obviously he takes it as a compliment. He says, oh, I'm old, uh, you know, I'm probably not that good looking. And hey, you could have done better than me. That's really what's being said here. So he takes it as a comp compliment. And now, my daughter, do not fear. Uh, I will do for you all that you ask, for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, which is an interesting statement. We don't have time to go there. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. And that was somebody in closer family relations who would have the first right of refusal, for lack of better words. Remain tonight. And obviously, you should have to remain tonight because a woman walking around after sundown by herself unescorted was a train wreck. Uh, you were in a dangerous place. Not, to, to let a woman go out at the night would, would not have been something a gentleman would, would, would ever let a woman do. So he says, stay here, stay here. Um, and in the morning, if he'll redeem you, good, let him do it. But if, if, but if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And, and you'll have to tune into next week to see whether he redeems her, but it's kind of like watching the Titanic. We know how it ends, right? All right, so I won't go there. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until the morning, rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And that's in, I think here it's clearly a statement made to those around who would have been um, Boaz's servants. And he's not telling anyone a lie. He's just saying, keep your mouth shut. Nothing was inappropriate here. But again, using discretion. If people say, oh, guess who spent the night at the threshing floor with Boaz? Well, what's the immediate inference there? And Boaz was a noble, reputable man. And to save his reputation and Ruth's reputation, he tells his servants, say nothing. Very simple. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing. NIV refers to a shawl, not asking her to undress. What really is sad about this is that as we move into a toxic, more of a toxic, godless, moral age, you have people inferring that there were sexual things happening here, which is just so shockingly inappropriate. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that people would literally sit here and listen to that and say, yeah, well, maybe they did. And it's, I mean, it tells you the depravity the state of the depravity of man that we could sit in a church and somebody can infer there were sexual things going on here without getting up and walking out. So having said that, and he said, bring your garment you're wearing and hold it out. And she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it, put it on her. Then she went into the city and when the, she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her. You know, it's interesting, Ruth's simple trust in Naomi and her obedience. The two huge things here. As a Christian, I could summarize our lives, the two words, trust and obey. Great hymn for that. But simply to trust that God's word says what it's, to stand on the word of God. And the second thing is obey. And, it, and, and obey is always going to be competing with one other thing. You know what it is? Sacrifice. 
He said, but I got it. I gave up this and I did this. And I did. No, 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 no. We are, Samuel, I love this. First Samuel 15, 22 says, does the, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as obeying the Lord? And here's the outcome. To obey is better than sacrifice. You know, I'd rather put my body on an altar than do what I'm actually being told to do. And, and that's just knowing human nature. So the story, the story here has, has great factual elements, but there's a bigger picture. We see Boaz as a picture of Jesus Christ, the prophesied redeemer. His relationship with both Ruth and Naomi represent God's relationship with the Jewish and Gentile peoples of the world. There are big picture issues going on here. And now he's referred to as the kinsman redeemer for a Gentile, which is really interesting. You know, it's interesting throughout Scripture, Christ, the New Testament church is called what? The bride. And Christ is referred to as the bridegroom, the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. And Christ has chosen. There was no obligation that he come and save the Gentile people. Nothing in there. They've kept their priorities first to the Jew, but then to the Gentile. But having set that aside, you have Naomi here who represents the nation of Israel. Her household has sinned. It's under judgment. You think about the church age where we now are. Who are the primary people getting saved in this day and age? It's the Gentile church. Why? Because when Christ came, whose people first and foremost rejected him? The nation of Israel. And so as this bride, uh, Ruth is going to be outside the family of God, has no right nor expectation to receive the things of God. And as the bride who is to marry Boaz, so we, the Gentile church, are now referred to as the bride of Christ. The theme of the book of Ruth really centers on God's faithfulness to redeem his people. And the question then becomes, who are his people? And there's the big news for us this morning. For Ruth, when she left Moab, by going with Naomi back to Israel, it was like being thrown under an 18-wheeler. <laughs> it's not going to be good. You can't get ejected through a moonroof of a car and come walk back up to the scene of the accident, can you? The Amorites and the Moabites were the scourge of the Jewish people. I'm going to paint a little picture for you when I say the scourge of the Jewish people. They've been, they were God's blacklisted people. You want to know how God really felt about the Moabites, about people like Ruth? Deuteronomy 23.3 tells us this, No Amorite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter into the assembly of the Lord, not even to the tenth generation. Now, when they use that 10th generation, that language is like, never. 10 generations, that should be sufficient if you can only live one. They were absolutely blacklisted. Don't know really how the Lord feels about the Moabites and Amorites? Zephaniah 2.9 tells us how he really feels. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom, the Amorites like Gomorrah, a place of weeds and salt pits, a wasteland forever. That's how he feels about these people. So, by the law, Ruth would have been banned from entering the Jews' house of God. She would have been banned from ever marrying a Jew. And for all intents and purposes, we have a complete stranger of God, and one should be a perpetual outsider who says, no, I'm still going to go. Do you know where the Amorites and Moabites come from? Oh, it's a great story. It starts with a man named Lot. Lot loses his wife, and the two daughters of Lot decide, we want to have kids, but there's no available men around. So let's get dad drunk 
and have sex with him. Those are the origins. It's Ben-Ami, which is the father of the Amorites, and the Moabites. Moab. That's where they come from. Now you know why God hate, why God detested these people. They came out of an incestuous relationship. Surely God would have nothing to do with those people, and rightly so. How is this so, though? How is it now that we see Ruth and a noble Jewish man saying, I'll marry you? The same way that Christ came for us those outside the family of God. What looks like an absolute pipe dream, an impossibility becomes possible in the Redeemer. Why is it that Ruth extended this, had this favor extended to her? And that's really the big question now. Back in Ruth chapter 2, 11, Boaz replied to her, he said, you've done uh, for your mother-in-law, excuse me, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and mother in the land of your birth and you came to a people that you did not previously know. And Boaz makes a statement, may the Lord reward your work and your wages to be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. What a huge statement. Matthew 11, 28, 29 tells us, Christ tells us, come. Very simple word. You don't got to have the right theology. You have to wear the right clothes. You don't have to get your act together. If you're waiting to get your act together to come to church, there'd be nobody here, if you're honest, all right? Or you're young. There's the exception, maybe. And I will give you rest. Ah, that's an interesting word. It keeps popping up everywhere, right? And I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. John 6, 35. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes... Very simple word, whoever comes, never go hungry. Whoever believes in me, never be thirsty. Not only will you not be turned away, you'll become a part of a divine family of God. If you're not familiar with the story of Boaz, he'll redeem Ruth a couple generations later. Guess there will be a grandchild named, I think it's grand, great-grandchild. You know his name will be? David. Yeah. The King David. The man known is a man after God's own heart. And down the generations, there will be another man born called Jesus Christ. You know, Boaz's father was a prostitute. Boaz's mother was a woman named Rahab, a prostitute. In the lineage of Christ, you see a divine plan to use the least for the most noble purpose in the existence of humanity. All part of a kingly lineage leading up to the king of kings. So, so if you come this morning here from a trash heap of humanity, I'd like to welcome you. Yeah, it's a great place to be, isn't it? Hey, come and get in the back of the bus with me. We'll be fine. Broken, fallen, fallible, stiff-necked, easily, you know, easily turned aside. And simply come. Simply come. Isaiah 52, 7 tells us this, what a great thing. Again, I really, you know, th this is kind of like a sermon you preach to the choir. But, you know, there are people here this morning that are saying, there's no way, there's no way that I can be a part of this. And my response is, it's a lie. My response is that, that, the, extent, that the grace of God through the person of Christ that extends the favor of God, you do one thing, come. It's idiot compatible, by the way, come.
you'll be fine. Fall down, we'll pick you up, we'll dust you off, you'll be fine. And that's what it means to be a member of the body of Christ. How beautiful the mountains are of the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings and who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And that's the picture of the God we serve this morning, the impossible. There's no way I can be a part of this family. He says, you're part. And what a wonderful thing to have a God that loves you, that loves me in that particular manner. So if you're feeling beat up this morning, just come. Just, just stay here. Just be a part of this. We're, I'm going to pray, and then, then I'm going to talk about communion. So let me pray right now. Father, Father, we thank you that truly the impossible becomes possible by the grace of God found in the person of Christ. We thank you so much for a story of a woman who should never have been a member of this family, that you not only welcomed, embraced, and brought her in, but you used her for a holy divine purpose. Lord, that's the message. I hope that we leave this morning, is that that's what you do with humanity. You use, you use people who will simply come, who will trust and obey to be a part of a holy divine perfect plan. And Father, we rejoice because if it was any harder, we wouldn't be able to participate. So I thank you. I thank you for your kindness, for this opportunity to teach this passage and your favor in my life. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.